Before we begin this afternoon, we're uh, continuing on with the series that we've been doing in the afternoon of things that you might run into whenever you are out teaching the gospel to people. And the first thing I want to do is reiterate something that Rusty said a couple weeks ago about how that we need to have patience and understanding with people and their beliefs when it comes to these things. You see, even things like this are going to be all the, the, the doctrine that they've ever known. They've been taught this for many years, sometimes uh, through the, the congregations that they've been in. They may have been in a place where there was only one preacher that does all the preaching. So they've only ever had one side of the story. And whenever you talk to these people, you know, a lot of times they look up to these individuals who have done this preaching because, you know, these are people who have went to college or uh, such things like this. And they look up to these people and they hold them in high regard. So when you talk to people about these things, they're also going to think that you may be inadvertently uh, casting an attack on the person that they have been taught by all their life and they may become defensive about these things. So we have to have a fair amount of patience and a fair amount of understanding with these individuals that this is the only thing that they've known whenever we try to teach them a different way than what they have been taught. We're gonna talk about today uh, two forms. Uh, there's traditional Calvinism is what they, uh, is the type that is where someone is predestined and it was started by a man named John Calvin, which was back in the 1500s. You may have read some information or history of about the Reformation era, era that started with Martin Luther. And when it comes to John Calvin, John Calvin was basically a second generation of this Reformation movement that was going on at the time. And then there is another form of Calvinism that's called free grace and that is where a person can initially choose salvation at first but then afterwards they can never lose it and this started uh, some reports are as, as early as Augustine in 422 AD but it never really was a big predominant uh, doctrine it seems until it basically reemerged uh, it seems in the 20th century you know, and the reason we talked about for this series is so we would be better equipped to deal with these kinds of questions or these kinds of doctrines whenever we encounter people that we are trying to teach the truth of the gospel to. And of these two types of Calvinism, there are denominations of both, many denominations that are out there. And I will try my best not to mention any particular uh, denomination by name, but I encourage you and really it behooves you to study this subject so that when you do talk to someone about this, because I guarantee you, it will not be long and you will encounter someone who believes this way. I'm sure that I can attest that uh, this is in Brother Jeremy's wheelhouse and Brother Jeremy's already run into it a lot. I have run into it myself that there are people out there who believe that once you are saved, you're always saved and you can never, ever lose your salvation but before we <clears throat> get into the the last part of this which was about the perseverance of the saints I feel it's necessary that we go over at least shortly for hopefully a short amount of time 
about the, the five tenets of Calvinism that this is based on. Uh, some of you may or may not know these things, may have never studied it out. And I think it's important that you are equipped with this information so you can readily be able to fight this kind of doctrine. The first one is called total depravity. And they use an acronym that's called TULIP, and you'll find each one of these uh, letters has uh, something that is associated with it. And the first one, the T, is called total depravity, or also known as total inability or original sin. And you may actually recognize this from the Reformation era, if you've studied about that, that it, it comes from the Roman Catholic Church. And original sin was a, a big part of the doctrine in the Roman Catholic Church as well. But in Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And other verses that they use along with these, and when I give all five of these points too, they're all going to have uh, verses that I have referenced down here. We will not go read all of these. But each one of these verses when you talk to someone who is of this mindset, they will have the idea that these ver verses are to be taken very literal in, in their meaning. Almost like they are just have this one group of verses and they're kind of like cherry picking out the meanings of these things instead of looking at the Bible in its whole context. But there are things like they say that, you know, that the heart is evil, that man is a slave to sin, that he does not seek God, or that he cannot understand spiritual things, that man is enmity with God, and by nature, that man is a child of wrath. Now, the Calvinist would ask you the question, well, if this is possible, if this was the state of man, that he is totally depraved, that he cannot understand spiritual things, he's an enemy with God, and such like, it says, how can a person, how is it possible for a person that is utterly lost and incapable to choose to serve or to desire God. And you know, and this is how they will answer it. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, it says there, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. This, of course, speaking here of Jesus. But other verses along with this about being born again, not by your own will. Or that God grants that we believe. Faith is the work of God or God appoints people to believe, and that God predestines. So the answer is, is that the person who is totally depraved, one who is, cannot choose God, there is no way that he can choose God, neither can he choose to follow him, or to love him, or follow his commands. So therefore, if mankind be like that, then God must predestine. And they think that mankind has been like that ever since the very beginning. So what it boils down to in a synopsis of total depravity is that in the end it is God's choice, not yours, to follow God. Because he will predestine. The second thing they teach is unconditional election. In Romans chapter 9 and verse 15 it says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. In other verses, they say that he chooses the elect according to the kind intention of his will, and that some are elected, and that some are not. So God does not base his election on 
anything that he sees in the individual, he chooses the elect according to the kind intention of his will or God's will, without any consideration of the merit within the individual, and nor does God look into the future to see who would pick him or choose him in the future, because obviously man is totally depraved, so he can't choose God. So neither could God look in the future to choose or to see who would pick him. So, in the second instance, it still comes to the same synopsis, that it's God's choice, it's not yours. The third thing, part of this uh, tulip doctrine, is limited atonement, or particular atonement. In John chapter 10 and verse 11 and verse 15, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Other places where it speaks of that Jesus died for many, not all. And I mentioned earlier about them taking a very literal interpretation of these verses that it says, you know, that Jesus died for many, but they don't think he died for all. Or that Jesus, whenever he prayed in the garden for those that were given him, but like his apostles, but not the world. Or that he purchased the church, but not all people. So while even though Jesus' sacrifice was indeed sufficient for all, it actually did not cover all. Jesus only bore the sins of of the elect or those that were predestined as we talked about earlier of those who would be predestined to serve God so again a synopsis of limited atonement would be that it was God's choice not yours the I in there is the irresistible grace in John chapter 6 and verse 37 it says all that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out in other places he talks about not our will but god's mercy or that god works salvation in the individual faith is the work of god and that god appoints people to believe as we saw earlier and uh, again that people are born again but not by our own will but by the will of god so when god calls his elect or those who are predestined into salvation that they literally cannot resist. And I had a good analogy for that earlier, and I was thinking of it, and I it's completely slipped my mind about <clears throat> an illustration of about not being able to resist. Oh, I know what it was. It was for the Star Wars fans in here. It was the Jedi thing. Whenever I don't know if anybody has seen old episode. Well, it's not really that old, but episode uh, four, which was actually the first one weird but whenever uh obi-wan and them were riding in this land speeder and they come up and, you know these stormtroopers come up and you know obi-wan waves his hands and says these are not the droids you're looking for and the stormtroopers there say these aren't the droids we're looking for and this is the kind of thing that what they're talking about the irresistible grace is that whatever god says you know they cannot resist that grace if God chose them and being predestined then they cannot resist that at all and even though God offers to all people the gospel message which they call the external call 
But to the elect, God extends an, an internal call that cannot be resisted whatsoever. This call is by the Holy Spirit who works in the hearts and minds of the elect to bring them to repentance and regeneration whereby, and get this, whereby they willingly and freely come to God. But really when you look at it in the end, it's the same synopsis. It's God's choice, not yours, of whether you choose to obey Him. And finally, we get to perseverance of the saints, which is the subject for our study this afternoon. In John chapter 10 and verse 27 through 28, it says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And they use other verses that, about salvation being eternal, that we have passed out of judgment, that we can't be attempted above which we are able, that God will complete the good work in us until Jesus returns. And as far as Romans 8 verse 39, about how that nothing can separate us from the love that is in Jesus Christ. So, it seems to me if you can't choose, which they think that you can't because you're predestined there's unconditional election you can't resist the grace of God when you're called then if you can't choose your salvation then obviously you can't give it up either there is no way that you can be taken out of grace or fall from grace you cannot lose your salvation because the father has elected the son has redeemed and the Holy Spirit has applied salvation so those that are chosen are predestined are eternally secure according to them in the Westminster <clears throat> yes I forgot I had it at the bottom there the Westminster commence confession of faith that says they whom God hath accepted in his beloved effectually called and sanctified by his spirit can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace but shall certainly persevere there to the end and be eternally saved. So in the end, still the same synopsis for the other points, that it's God's choice, not yours, that you can never fall from grace. You cannot choose to give up your salvation. The other form of Calvinism that uh, has reemerged lately is free grace. And with this view teaches that you do have an initial choice of salvation, and you are not predestined or predetermined to be a servant of God, that you can choose to follow God. It is within your will. But however, once you choose to make that choice to believe in Jesus Christ and accept Him as your Savior, you can never be in jeopardy of ever losing your soul again. And this view teaches a strict literal interpretation of John 10 and 28 about, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. There is nothing that the person can do, there is nothing that anyone else can do to make a person lose their salvation. There's a, a, uh, a preacher that preaches today. Many of you might recognize the name. His name is Dr. Charles Stanley. And he has some TV shows. And he wrote in a book of his, in a chapter titled, For Those Who Stop Believing, he says the following, The Bible clearly teaches that God's love for his people is of such magnitude 
that even those who walk away from the faith have not the slightest chance of slipping from his hand. A little later, Stanley also writes, You and I are not saved because we have an enduring faith. We are saved because at a moment in time we expressed our faith in the enduring Lord. So it doesn't matter if your faith is enduring. You can fall away or you can choose to walk away, but it doesn't matter. You can still keep your salvation. And you know whether or not these two ideologies of Calvinism uh, the original, the traditional version, or the free grace version, whether or not these agree on predestination or free will doesn't really matter. But however, they do both agree on tenet number five. And then that is what the subject of our study is this afternoon, and that's the point that we would like to refute. And instead of hacking at all five limbs on this tree, which I would love to do, we're going to get to the root of the problem, and that's where we're going to lay the axe to this afternoon, is the underlying problem in these five things. First, I want you to understand that you will not be able to disprove this doctrine with a one-verse comeback to anyone whenever you're talking to them about Scripture. Just like uh, many of the same thing when we talk about baptism, even though in Scripture... The truth of God's word may be contained in one verse, and generally one verse, if God said it, one verse is enough. But generally, with this type of uh, doctrine that has been impregnated into people, that they will not be able to be persuaded away with a one-verse comeback. It will take much study on your part, and it will take much patience on your part, to show the pattern in God's word about the nature of God concerning this subject and I'm going to refer to these people who teach this doctrine as eternal security teachers because that is what they teach is eternal security that you can never lose your salvation they only tend to use the New Testament scriptures really to show the nature of man but you really cannot do that you really have to use all of the scripture and likewise you cannot use only New Testament scripture to show the nature of God you have to use Old Testament as well. You have to use the whole uh, of His Word to see what the nature of God is. And I want you to realize in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, God here says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. So uh, God's nature has been the same from the beginning as it was in the time of Christ, as it is today, as it will be 2,000 years from now if we have future time upon this earth. God never changes, and His ideas or the requirements that He has had has never changed from the beginning, that the things that He expects from us. And we won't be able to really study God's nature in depth as I would like to, but we will show things that can cast a fair amount of doubt into this ideology. First thing I want to mention is that neither version of this doctrine started in the time of the apostles. And I know at first you may think, well, that's not really that great of an argument. But it indeed is something for us to look at. None of the early church fathers, such as Oregon, Tertullian, Eusebius, etc., ever mentioned this doctrinal teaching in their way of thinking. In fact, 
they teach quite the opposite. And I have a, a dictionary of early Christian beliefs at home, and it has all kinds of subjects that you can look up, and it has writings in there by some of the early church fathers of what people actually thought about different things in the scriptures that we could use uh, to glean some information about how things were and possibly in the first century, the second century, and so on. All of y'all remember Barnabas, right? From the, in the book of Acts. <clears throat> Barnabas wrote, We ought therefore, brethren, carefully to inquire concerning our salvation. Otherwise, the wicked one, speaking of Satan, having made his entrance by deceit, may hurl us forth from our life. Now I ask you, what life do you think that Barnabas is talking about? I know that he's talking about eternal life. As we can see from other writers, Clement of Alexandria says, God forgives, God gives forgiveness of past sins. However, as to future sins, each one procures this for himself. He does this by repenting, by condemning the past deeds, and by begging the Father to blot them out. For only the Father is the one who is able to undo what is done. So even in the case of one who has done the greatest good deeds in his life, but at the end has run headlong into wickedness, all his former pains are profitless to him. For at the climax of the drama, he has given up his part. Teaches very plainly that Clement of Alexandria believed that a person could definitely give up their salvation at the end if they run headlong back into wickedness. Tertullian wrote, God had foreseen that faith even after baptism would be endangered. He saw that most persons after obtaining salvation would be lost again by soiling the wedding dress, by falling, failing to provide oil for their torches. And one final short one from the writer Oregon, or Origen, however you pronounce his name. It says, A man may possess an acquired righteousness from which it is possible for him to fall away. You see this, this uh, <clears throat> I believe that this doctrine of Calvinism and this five-point tenets that they have is a house that's built upon the sand. If you remove any one of these tenets from the overall doctrine of it and the five pillars that it stands on, then the whole house comes crashing down. And if you ask well, the reason why all five are, are dependent on each other, why is it it come crashing down? Well, it's because each one of the points that are in this are all interdependent on each other. And if you take one out and disprove it, then all the other four are wrong as well. So they have to all five either be correct or they have to all five be incorrect. And because all five points depend on each other to survive and they all rest on the same one premise. And that was the premise that I gave you a synopsis of or each five points of that tenets of Calvinism is that it's God's choice, not yours. And if you can disprove this, and this is the root that I was talking about hacking at, if you can disprove this point that it is your choice, that it's not God's of choosing salvation or choosing not to be saved, then this whole doctrine comes crashing down. I want you to realize that we have always had a choice and we always will have a choice until God returns or Jesus returns. You know, Adam and Eve had a choice in the beginning. They had a choice whether to follow what God said and not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil 
or they could have obeyed. They did disobey, excuse me. They disobeyed and ate of it anyway. See, they had a choice, and their choice was called either obedience or disobedience. In uh, the Hebrew, obedience literally means to hearken to or yield to. So Adam and Eve could either hearken to or yield to God's commands, or they could not. If I gave you an illustration about the, the laws of the land that we have in this country today, is it the government, does the government choose for you to obey the laws of the land, or is it up to you to choose to follow the laws of this land? And we all know that it's our choice. The government doesn't uh, miraculously force everyone to be a law-abiding citizen because we know that doesn't happen. If we did, we wouldn't have crime. But we know that's not the case. All of us have a choice. And Adam and Eve had a choice in the beginning. In Romans 5 and verse 19, it says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. So from the very beginning, Adam had a choice, but he chose wrong and he brought sin into the world. So I want to ask you a question, though. Were Adam and Eve the only ones that ever had a choice of whether to choose to obey God or to disobey God. If the, the idea of Calvinistic predestination is correct, or the unconditional election, predestination, and these such things, then everyone that was after Adam and Eve does not have a choice. Nobody has a choice anymore of whether they can choose to be saved or not. And then including Adam and Eve, once they sinned, which is what brought sin into the world and what brought death, it was the disobedience to God, then that would have entered total depravity. And because of that, then, it seems that Adam and Eve, from that point on, would have been so totally depraved as well that they would not have been able to choose to follow God and to follow His commands from that point on after that. It would have to be God that would choose that for them and to make them do it. But the scriptures, the scriptures say a very different thing. Even hundreds of years later when God was talking to the nation of Israel, in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 5, He says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. So this, if they would choose to obey, he says, and keep my commandments. God was putting the choice on the nation of Israel that if you do this, then I will give you this. There's always been a give and take with God, a return. And the eternal security teachers, they will like to completely disqualify the if statements, which are many that are found in the Old Testament and say that they don't apply to the believer in Christ. But however, this doesn't explain the 20-some if statements that are given to Christians in the New Testament that say basically the same thing of what God said to Israel and His people at the same time, or back then, that they have a choice of whether to obey or not. In John chapter 8 and verse 31, it says, Then, said, then Jesus said to those Jews who believed Him, If you abide in My word, you are My disciples indeed. You know, Jesus said it was conditional. 
Jesus wasn't necessarily just talking to his disciples here. He was talking to others as well. So it wasn't just the, the chosen in the church. It was there were Pharisees and scribes here at the same time that says, if you choose to follow what I say, if you abide in my word, then you're my disciples. It was a give and take. In John chapter 15 and verse 5 through 6, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. <clears throat> if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Again, Jesus gives a conditional statement. Here he is talking to his twelve uh, disciples at the Last Supper. But even the hand-picked apostles, the chosen people of Jesus, had a choice whether to remain or to abide in him or not. Which is the word that I want you to notice is the word abide. That word means to remain in or continue in. Those who preach eternal security will say that if someone falls away, well, they must have not really been saved in the first place, which is not a great argument. But you cannot abide in something. Jesus was telling his disciples, if you abide in me, that then, I forgot where I was going with that. Anyway, the, the point was, was that Jesus was telling them to abide in him. And you cannot abide in something if you're not in it to begin with. If I was to, uh, example of my house, and it says, you know, that I'm going to abide in my house. Well, I can't abide in my house. I cannot continue in or stay in my house if I'm not in my house to begin with. So Jesus has given the option that is conditional that there is a time when you cannot abide in me. You can choose to not abide in me. And Jesus said, notice, it says, and I in him. So it's a mutual respect there of about we choose to abide in Jesus and Jesus abides in us. But it's always an if. It's a conditional thing. And one of the biggest flaws, I believe, of this eternal security ideology is that it treats salvation or eternal life as an act, something that you do one time, and then you are forever secure in it. Remember what Dr. Charles Stanley, the quote that he said, that you could initially choose it at that one point, but then after that, you're never in jeopardy of ever losing your salvation. So a person can be initially saved, but then fall in back to a life of sin and live in a life of sin, but with no repercussions from God because, well, you know, they profess belief in me, and I can't go back on what I told them about their salvation. And while we do obey the gospel and receive eternal life at the beginning, in an act that we do, the scriptures teach us, though, that salvation after that point is an ongoing process. I want you to note Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 9 through 11. Peter said here, For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren... Be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly in the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. Peter here said that you need to make your calling and election sure. Well, if a person is eternally forever secure, why would I need to make sure that my calling and my election is sure if it's already set in stone, if you will? God has always been a God who demands obedience and abiding, abiding within His words. You know, the Bible from front to back is littered with phrases of about with the if statement that if you do this, I will do this. It's been a part of Scripture and God's words for thousands upon thousands of years. And if we obey God, then He will reward us. And likewise, if we don't obey, then there are repercussions. So God has never forced anyone to follow Him. An unconditional election, in my opinion, is just that, is forcing someone to follow God. It's uh, the term that I used was forced servitude. And I don't think that God has ever been that type of person. Or that type of God, excuse me. So I ask you the question then. Can a person lose their salvation? Well, if the scriptures that show that the salvation or being in Christ is a conditional thing like we've already seen, and you can go back and you can study all through the Bible and find all the conditional statements that, they're, that are in and about the nature of God. And if that doesn't convince you enough, then let's look at some that quite obviously say that you can fall from grace or lose your salvation. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 35 and 39, it says, Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. In verse 39, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Earlier he was talking about not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. So we know he's talking to Christians. And he was telling them to not cast away your confidence. Well, in the previous verse, their confidence was, was that they knew that they had a home in heaven. And the writer here is telling them, don't cast that away. And in verse 39, he says, We're not unto those who draw back to perdition. Perdition is destruction. He's talking about people who are not saved. We're not like those people who draw back to those kind of things. We believe, he says, to the saving of the soul. So it's a very different idea there. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20 through 21, it says, For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again tangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. So <clears throat> Peter is obviously talking about Christians again. Those who have escaped the pollutions of the world, those who have put off sin, have obeyed the gospel. He said, if they are again entangled in them and overcome, he says, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. Well, how was it in the beginning? They were eternally lost. Well, if it's worse for them than it was in the beginning, then they're, if there can be anything worse, they're worse than eternal lost. He says, it was better for them never to have known. And there's the key. They knew the way of righteousness and then turned from it. So the scriptures say something very different. James 5 and verse 19 through 20 says, Brethren, if any among you 
wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Again, who is he talking to? James says he's talking to brethren, those that were in the church. He says if you wander from the truth and someone turns him back, if the person that wanders from the truth becomes, what does he call him? He becomes a sinner. And he says, if you turn him from the error of his way, you save a soul from death. Well, that death, it's eternal destruction. So it is possible that a brother could fall to such a point where he could lose his salvation and be in danger of eternal destruction. God said in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 19, And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. I also want to mention that earlier in this book, when he was talking to the churches, there he said at times that the people that were there, he says, if they did not repent, he said that I will blot your name from the book of life. So not only is it possible for a person to choose to go off the path and lose their salvation, it's also possible for a person to go off and make that serious enough a mistake where God shall take away his part out of the book of life is what he said there was a point where the churches there could have gotten so far off track that Jesus would have made right what he said and would have blotted their name out of the book of life so those were obviously people who were in the church their name was in the book of life but it can be removed so there is a very different idea of the teaching between Calvinism and what really the Bible says. So you may ask, are there any cases in the Bible where there was someone who lost their salvation? Do we have an example that we can look at? Actually, there are. There are three parables, actually four, that I'd like to reference, and hopefully I won't spend too much time on it because I think I actually may outdo Rusty this time. The, the first one we want to talk about is the parable of the sower. You read that in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 18 through 23. You know, in the parable of the sower, it said that there was four different types of places that he sowed the seed. And one of those was the stony places. And it said, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word immediately he stumbles and there was also another instance where he said about he sowed the seed that was among the thorns and it said is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful so jesus himself gave a parable that out of these four places that he strew seed that there were two places where people did receive the word and obeyed but yet they turned away from it whether because they had no root in themselves or the the cares of this world choked them up and they become unfruitful and turned away there's the also the the parable of the talents and the parable of the pounds these are kind of two parables that are parallel to each other uh included both of them because the parallel excuse me the parable of the pounds also includes those people who were uh, not Christians, who rejected Christ. 
in that it says that there were people there who said that, you know, we will not have him to be our king. And then the other two, the, the parable of the talents and the parable of pounds from then on, speak about how the, <clears throat> the master, he distributed these things to his servants. The master went away, which we know is a depiction of him distributing things here while he was here on this earth or given. Jesus went off, went to receive his uh, throne in heaven, and it talked about that the master would come back. And we all know that that depicts today of Jesus' second return, or his the next return of Jesus, excuse me. And that when he comes back, he's going to require them to show what they have done while they were here. And the one with that five talents or whatever, they gained five more. And he thought that that was a good thing, that this servant have did well. And the one with the two talents did the same thing. He did well, he gained two more. But then there was the one servant who had one pound that didn't do anything with him. And obviously this was a servant of the kingdom, as we can find from the parable. But yet when he comes back, when the master comes back and he requires his talents to be given back to him to see what the person had done with him, the person who had the one talent had digged in the earth and buried it and did nothing with it. He chose to not do anything while he was here. And what was the repercussion for choosing not to do anything? It says that servant, that pound or talent was taken from him and the parable of talent says that he was cast into outer darkness, whether it be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this was a person who was in his master's good graces as a Christian would be, but yet when Jesus returned to come take these things, the servant lost his good standing with his master because he did nothing with it. And finally, you think about the parable of the lost son, which is... Uh, I agree with Rusty, which is one of the most obvious ones of about the son who was with his father in the beginning. He wanted all of his inheritance that he had and he went off and he left the good graces of where he was in his house and left that and went off and went and lived a life of sin and spent it with riotous living. And then he decided to eventually come back. Now, the good thing about this servant in this case was that for a while though he really had lost his salvation because at the end of the parable we find that the father said why he was rejoicing was because because this was my son who was lost or he was dead it referred to he says but now he's alive so this was a person who was in his good graces had went off and lived a, a life of riotous living and lost basically his good standing with his father but luckily he was able to come back and he did but the point of the story was was that while he was gone while he had walked away from his father he said to him to the father he was lost he was dead to him until he came back so it was the 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 son's choice to go off and to walk away from that salvation. It was the son's choice to come back and to repent and be in the good graces of his father again. So I think overall, 
in these. And, and there are many, many more situations that we can use in the scriptures. This is just touching a highlight on it. And we can see how long I've spoken already. But there are many situations that speak of this that we can gain from the nature of God. That he always required obedience. That it is our choice. And that God does not force us to choose him. So I want to leave you with one final verse, even though the scriptures are quite clear. In 2 Chronicles chapter 15 and verse 2, he says, And he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him, if you seek him. He will be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will forsake you. So I want you to know that the real synopsis of everything is that it's your choice, it's not God's, to whether you choose to follow Him, whether you choose to obey that gospel, whether you choose to walk away from the salvation that you have in Him, you are not necessarily eternal secure, eternally secure if you turn your back on the Father. Because it says, if you turn your back on Him, He says, I will turn my back on you. I hope that the things that I have shared with you this afternoon have been a benefit to you i hope they help you in any kind of studies that you have whenever you talk to people about this subject if you're a person who has never decided that you want to obey the gospel that you want to follow god and be obedient to him now is your opportunity to make that choice and if you have made the choice before that you have obeyed the gospel but you have walked away have gotten into things that you should not have and you want to return to god you can make that choice to do that as well we have the song that has been chosen we invite you to come forward have a seat on the front while we stand and while we sing